As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm delighted to be joined today by... Jonathan Dog McKenzie. Hi, John. Hello. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Well, you're sat next to the talented and virile JJ Bull the Bullard. Yes. Yes, how are you? Virile. You are virile. Now, listen, we were supposed to be joined by Sebastian Stafford Bloor today. The hair doctor, of course, is in Germany and uh, unavailable due to various technical issues. So, this episode, a lot more fun than usual. Is that fair? <laughs> <laughs> No, bless him. He sat around for 20 minutes waiting for us to uh, sort our shit out. And in the end, we just sent him away again. But listen, he sends his love and he'll be back soon, hopefully. For the time being, though, we will tell you all about what's coming up in the show today. Now, what is in the show today? Arsenal versus Manchester United. Big game. One of the big games of the season. We spend an awful lot of time. Too long, in fact, talking about that. Uh, That's going to be fun. Chelsea's long contracts. Does that sound interesting to you? No? Well, stop listening before that bit. West Ham and David Moyes. JJ talks uh, about that a little bit later. And, of course, Everton and Frank Lampard. We record this on a Monday. We know nothing. <laughs> we actually, I actually don't know. I'm just saying that because uh, sometimes what happens around February, January, March time is we spend an awful lot of time discussing someone on a Monday recording. And by the time the Gosh Darn podcast comes out on a Tuesday, that fella's gone! Far more as well. Bit about cows in there, JJ. You talked a lot about cows. We did. Cow, regular theme of the show today. I revealed my true accent. That's true. You did do that, didn't you? Mm. Yeah. What else happened, John? We doxed David Moyes. We doxed David Moyes. That bit was cut out. And, of course, also, you uh, you uh, revealed your absolute intense hatred for Casemiro. <laughs> yes. Remember that true. bit? Yes. Yeah. Me, me and John disagreed. You did disagree. Oh, that's true. Think of the conflicts that you need for good drama. Imagine that. Imagine that. Now, listen, if you like conflict and good drama, then you should get Paramount Plus. Very good, actually. I've been watching What's Top Gun. I've been watching Yellowstone. Yeah. It's quite enjoyable. Top Gun's so good, though, isn't it? It does feel weird paying for a streaming service uh, just to watch one show. Do you know I watched um, the other night? It's what? really good. Yeah. Uh, the Dark Knight. The, the, the Batman film. Yeah, the Christopher Nolan yeah. film. So good. That is, that, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? It's been so long now that it's okay to say that. If you said that 10 years ago, people would have looked at you like you'd gone insane. Well, I've seen it before. I haven't seen it for so long. Sure, sure, it, sure. It's, um, it, I remember it differently to how I remember it 
when it came out ages ago, which must have been when I was at uni, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But it's a bit like in a cultural sense, though, because that's such an accepted comment and starts is a bit like saying, oh, uh, the Beatles were good, weren't they? Oh, I suppose it is one of the top performing like, IMDb movies. I suppose. So. so a lot of films I started watching recently and I just stopped after 10 minutes because they're rubbish. Yeah? Yeah. That's a shame. Yeah. But if you don't want to stop after 10 minutes because something's rubbish, then you should visit The Athletic because nothing is rubbish on there. And I tell you what, if anything, it's bad. I, my doctor tells me I shouldn't sit on the... T- he hasn't actually said this to me, but he could say this to me. Don't sit on the toilet, or if you want to um, obviously sit on the toilet, but don't sit on the toilet for so long. If you want... Top tip, if you want to, and this is from a friend of mine. It Sam is a friend. Was Joe panicked when he started the... Uh, no, no, I didn't the, panic. I was just trying to... He started the, the story. A friend of mine... <laughs> audience, there is discussion of piles upcoming. So if you don't want to hear that... Skip ahead a good sort of f- f- four minutes, maybe four minutes, and and if you want to hear it, stay listening for more more about piles. <laughs> it was a friend. I you know I'd tell you if it was me, but a friend of mine uh, had um, what do they call it? No piles. I don't piles. think we need to talk about this in the podcast. Fr- <laughs> you don't want to talk about piles? No. Why not? What's wrong with talking about piles? I guess you do like talking about things. That Which is like a bit the normal thing that happens to people. Yes, I, yeah, right. not ideal. Particularly men of our age. Men of our age, but we should we shouldn't like make piles a scary thing not to discuss because piles happens to people. Well, it's more uh, a lot of people know. want to like listen to a podcast in their commute or while they're having breakfast or something like that. And that's where they need to hear about piles because piles, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Are you doing an ad for piles? <laughs> I don't know what's happening. What I'm saying is... If you is, go to piles.com forward slash... You sit on your toilet for a long... Customise your piles. This is the point. The doctor said to my friend, after he'd uh, experienced piles, he said, listen, listen, buddy, if you like sitting on the toilet, no big deal, but just uh, finish your business, put the, the, the main toilet lid down, sit back down on the top of that. Because the issue is the circle, the circle, the, the toilet lid itself, they literally force it. It's designed to kind of force. So what you're doing is you're just pushing, pushing, pushing. And if you sit there for a very long time, you can cause those issues for yourself. So if you are someone that spends a long time on the toilet, just finish your business, then put the top lid down, sit on top of that. The reason I say all of this is because the athletic is so good that I spend longer on the toilet than I should because I'm reading. And sometimes the reads are longer than normal. And I'm, to the point I'm making is it's a terrific product. And if you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, make an advanced appointment with your doctor. And to you, listener, this intro is a pretty good gauge of where this podcast goes from <laughs> now on. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it's that fun sitting on a toilet with the lid down. Isn't the, no, it's no, it's not. Isn't fun. the whole point? Once that, you're up and you can't stay in there, you might as well just sit up. on a chair. But okay. then, isn't yeah. the point that people like sitting on a toilet because it's comfortable because of the? You could put a chair in the bathroom. No, I think people just That's like the, the 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 alone experience time. of being like it's suspended s- above nature. Well, you're safe. It's an in, it's, the door it's, shut. You're you're yeah. away from everyone else. It's quite literally intimate as well because you are you are exposed. You feel it's a womb like uh, environment, isn't it? <laughs> Very womb like. No. No. I just think the gravitational pull is just an enjoyable experience. Yeah. That's what people like, you know. Well, this is good. Steve Hankey's put this in the, in the plan. NHS Choices website says how you can treat or prevent piles. There's lots of information out there about piles. And you know what? We made a joke. We made a joke. It was a fun bit of time, wasn't it? But piles is a real issue that afflicts many, many people. And people that we know. People that we you and I know. We talk about three games in this podcast. <laughs> 
There's a line in here that says, gently push a pile back inside. I'm going to... <laughs> See you later. Use an ice pack wrapped in a towel to ease discomfort. It, it, it says wipe your bottom with damp toilet paper. Why would that be? It says damp. Yeah. I don't think that would be a very nice experience. Exercise regularly. That's no good. It <laughs> doesn't do say anything about not sitting on the toilet here, though, does it? You can take paracetamol if piles hurt. Not sure. Keep okay. your bottom clean and dry. <laughs> good advice for all of us. Okay. So what am I <laughs> <laughs> Football podcast. Where else to begin, of course, than with Arsenal 3 to Manchester United? Game of the season so far, or at least that's what people said on the Sunday it happened on. And then when the next good one happens, they'll also say the same about that one. But it was a good game, wasn't it, John? It was obviously there was a you know an element of a title challenge here, although not really, as I heard. Last night, that is it, 538, who do the statistics for most likely to win the league? Manchester United, after the game, were uh, 1%. I'm so sorry, Steve Hankey, the producer's derobing in the producer cubicle over there. And uh, young video producer Jamie looks very uncomfortable about that. Since an HR issue coming up. No, I'm saying Manchester United have a 1% chance of winning the league, same as Newcastle United. I think after, after this game, obviously, same number of games played, same number of points. Arsenal... 63% chance now of winning the league, which is rather high, isn't it? It is more than 50%, yeah. therefore more likely than not. Yeah. Would you agree that it would be maybe more of a surprise at this point if Arsenal didn't win than if they did? Well, Arsenal have got, what, an eight-point advantage if they win their game in hand, is that right? I yes. think so, yes. And they still have to face Man City twice, but it would yeah. be theoretically with an eight-point advantage. Yeah, and I think the result of that game is obviously going to swing that that percentage wildly because um, 63%, given their eight points clear, isn't actually that much of a of, of an advantage. So mm. the model clearly favours Manchester City, depending on what happens in those games. Um, Why would it favour them, do you think? Just because once if, if you've got a game against the team that you're, going, that you're challenging in the title against, it's a six-point swing, and so you still have a good chance of turning the title around if mm-hmm. if Manchester City lose one of those two games then it's much harder for them to actually because it's just yeah they've, they've lost three points and the, their opponent have gained three so yeah it's a, a much harder hill to climb but it, yeah the, it's an it's going to be a really interesting second half of the season on that basis I think because we can argue till the cows come home about who's better between Arsenal and Man City, but the fact of the matter is we've got halfway through the season and Arsenal have that eight-point advantage. And the cows leave the field? Yeah, where is the cows' home? Where do they go? I don't know where they go. They go do back they, to the shed. Do they go in... Do, do cows sleep indoors? Yeah, cow sheds. They have little sheds. Should we look this up? Well, I, I live like in my house in Aberdeenshire. You live, you I live in a shed. You can see all cows in the field. You can hear them as well. Do cows sleep in? They don't have doors. homes. I've got a meadow near me as well, and they sleep outside. Yeah, but in winter they will be in a shed. The most ideal condition for a cow is when the temperature is around <laughs> 10 degrees. Very few cows like rain, uh, strong winds, or... <laughs> don't they ask them? This is quite good, though. This is the same coming. as me. You found a, Very found few cows rain? like rain. They don't like strong winds. They don't like heat. 
If the weather's too hot or too rainy, a cow will often prefer to stay indoors. And when it's so cold that you can get ill from being outside, do they still make people sit outside the pub with you? With them? Yeah, they do. Only the cows who well, smoke, though, That's right? right, yeah. But, you know, listen, that's the rules. That's the rule of part of cow society. If you want to hang out with cool people, you have to sit outside during the wintertime. Cow munition. I think that was true 15 years ago, wasn't it? Now the answer is if you want to hang out with people who smell and hate themselves... You have to sit outside the pub. (laughs) But anyway, we were talking about Arsenal, uh, who are, JJ, 50 points gained after 19 games. Of course, they're on track to be centurions. That doesn't happen very often. I think that's only happened one time before. Are they worth it? They're worth that 50 points, that haul? Yes, they're really genuinely good. Yeah. Uh, This game showed that, didn't it? Yeah, and I think the... The things that would stop them from getting to win the title now are going to be uh, luck going against them. Meteor strike. A meteor strike, yeah. yeah. Um, So so like meteor strikes, earthquakes, that sort of thing. If the cows didn't come home. Exactly. But it's going to be if, um, you know, they don't score, they get an XG of like 3.4 and they just don't get the goal. The goalkeeper has had an amazing game or they hit the post or something like that, just things like that. Yeah. Or then maybe just a team sits really deep and manages the block and they don't get the chances and they score. And that's two games in a row where they have that and suddenly you start going, oh my God, but we were so many points clear. And then you start to panic a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think Arteta has the mentality with them going. And I did a video on Tifo IRL that came out on Sunday night. And I think a lot of what makes Arsenal so good is the intensity and energy. Do they create a lot of chaos, but there's real controlled moments within it. Players like Odegaard and uh, Zinchenko, who just take the extra beat to try and slow things down in that moment of chaos. So whether there's like a whirlwind going on around them, they're the ones who are steady on the ball and it helps them mm. create things. But everything's going their way because they are creating these uh, these surges at the start of games. So they've, they're like 7-0 up, I think, in terms of the first 15 minutes of games. And that's just like, so you mean within the first 15 minutes of every game, it, it, they've scored seven goals in those periods of time and their opponents haven't scored. That's right. That's what I yeah, mean to say. Okay. Um, and also, like, even when they don't score, they just are relentless and go at the team. And yeah. it has this effect of then pushing the opposition backwards and making them realise, oh my God, this is a real big yeah. thing. And naturally, no matter what they've been told before the game by the manager and whatever they've worked on, they'll naturally fall back a little bit and just try and shore up the defence to make sure that they can't leak anything. Yeah. Uh, so then you see that the first 15 minutes Arsenal have control, this 15 to 30 minutes they have control, and then it starts to be a little bit more, it's a bit more even towards the end of the first half. Then they come out for the second half, and they are strong, and they come out again. And again, they're winning that, I think it's 13-4, I think the score is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a website I got it off the other day, and I can't remember what it's called. So sorry about that. Good website, you helped me. And the... Um, so that's that's the thing. So they've got that real energy that comes out. So they're managing games really well. And they finish. Are they, are they choosing this? They're saying like, okay, for the first thirty minutes of the first half, we'll press. There'll be a middle period in the second half where maybe things will be more even. I think it's we'll a natural consequence, strongly, or it's just natural. I think that they could do it all the time. They would, but then okay. naturally you can't do that with the same. It's mostly the same eleven every single week. This is the other thing as well. So yeah. if that if they can keep going like it, like Leicester did when they won the league and they keep that core unit together, and they manage minimal injuries like Jesus just now, mm. then they they should be able to get all the way past it because they've got this... Remember when Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool were really good and you just felt like whoever's playing them knew they were in a battle yeah. and it just wasn't going to be fun and you don't want to have to deal with it. It's going to be, oh, God, it's not going to be fun. They feel like that just now. They do. Just relentless. But it takes just a little bit of a like a, a dent in the tracks to push them off and it could mm-hmm. just see how they come onto that. If it was in, if you're playing football manager, it normally comes in February. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's normally a run where just for no reason you start losing, even though it was so easy before, you're just hitting space, 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 space. Yeah. It just changes. And well, I think, they've Man City coming up pretty soon yeah, as well. 
they're quite close. It's in yeah, it's in a Champions League week that. So yeah. they put that in. John, when you listen to JJ talk, I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about uh, uh, tactics and systems and teams as a whole. But uh, it's hard to watch this Arsenal side and not sort of think intensity has a big part to play, right? And that also that the players they appear to um, desire it. You know what I'm saying? Do they desire it? They seem to. They really seem to desire it. Yeah, I, th- I think what was interesting about the game itself was it, it almost followed a different trajectory to the trajectory that, that JJ's describing, which is mm. that they, they are, I think they are very controlled in terms of like they come out with intensity in the first 15 minutes of both halves usually. But they have had a problem in the season th- through the various games they played there where people have questioned whether or not they've dropped off too much in the second half. Mm. Um, and that didn't happen in this game. If, no. if anything, the opposite happened, and they were just able to pin Manchester United back for yeah. most of the second half after the uh, after the equalising goal for Manchester United. And I think so much of of that has come from the the, the fact that they're able to um, that they're able to just control to control games so well that the way that Manchester United wanted to come out against them was by being super aggressive in the first half. Um, they they tried to press high. They went player for player in midfield. And this game was actually really interesting if you compare it to the blueprint of the Manchester derby because Arsenal obviously playing very similar style of football to the way Manchester City are playing. In that Manchester derby, we saw Man United coming out with a, a flatter back four. Uh, and I think the idea was that they were going to try and create space in wide areas and really punish Manchester United by by just getting ball progression in the wide areas because Manchester United operate with a, a forward press of three players against a back four, which means they're always going to be a man down in that forward press. Mm. Um, and so what often can happen is that you can play the ball one side, go back to the goalkeeper and the goalkeeper can just chip it to the, the, the fullback who's usually free. Man City tried to do that in the first half, but interestingly enough, Manchester United were able to just control the game because they were able to man-mark in the middle comfortably when that when that happened. So what Pep did in the second half was he inverted one of the fullbacks. He brought on Rico Lewis, who is a really exciting young player who is playing as a as, as a sort of central midfielder dropping out into into the right back area. They went really narrow, and it meant that they that that meant that Ma- Manchester United had to narrow their forward press because they have um, the, the, those three players who are going to try and go as player to player where they can. That created space in wide areas, and and then we saw Manchester City players in the midfield area dropping into those wide areas so Kevin De Bruyne uh, moving moving one way and I can't remember who they played in central midfield on the other side it must have been Bernardo, Bernardo Silva. Silva yeah and what that did then was that pulled players out from the centre and created more space in the middle so by mm. being narrower in the lower build up created f- more space further up uh, and that really caused caused problems that was what happened for Arsenal throughout the game they played that way from the beginning they had Sinchenko inverting quite a lot maybe even inverting more in the second half mm. um, which Granite Xhaka in particular moving out into the wide area pulling his marker with him and again creating space in there Manchester United had to be really really energetic and aggressive to cause Arsenal problems in the first half and they did do that Uh, but in the second half I think they just they couldn't play that way for the whole 90 minutes and so everything sort of started falling to pieces a bit and that's why they then started dropping deeper and 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 holding trying to hold out against against Arsenal but this was a this was a battering by Arsenal I think insofar as if you look at the the underlying numbers it's two and a half xg to 0.3 or something sure three two is is flattering to to Manchester United yes they were competitive they did what they needed to do to stay in the game um but in terms of you know 
if you if you look at the the numbers and uh, it, it it was very much arsenal deserved to win this game mm. and uh, again like a real show of of arsenal character to come back into the game and then get that that win right at the end as well so yeah they've got everything at the moment arsenal they have they have the ta- tactical ability to be able to do these things that we're talking about but they also have the ability to like keep their heads which is what they didn't have last season right yeah. at the end yeah. and once you've got that combination of those two things together you're just unbeatable really and they've got the uh, moral reprehensibility of a of a terrible, disgusting manager on the on the on the <laughs> sidelines, running up and down and shouting, making noises with his mouth. JJ, something unseen before in football, but of course, uh, the British media, good as they are, have uh, have declared that that is not allowed. Well, he is doing things you ought not to do as the manager of a team in England. (laughs) I agree. You should very much wear your suit and stay quiet. (laughs) I sort of feel like you've got a lot more authority when you speak with that voice. (laughs) Well, this is actually my real voice, Joe, the whole time, and the Scottish thing has been a bravado. (laughs) A a bravado. (laughs) Yes. Very nice. That's the word we use in England. (laughs) I like it. What do you actually think, though? In... My real voice (laughs) or my fake Scottish one? I want to hear in your fake Scottish voice what you make. Because obviously, you know, listen, there's a subjective issue here. Do you like uh, a rowdy cowboy? Some do, some don't, (laughs) right? I like watching him run up and down... Getting those cows. I just bringing the cows back from earlier. It was rowdy, you said. He's got the rowdy, yeah, not randy. A rowdy cowboy. Got the lasso. Get those cows. You know what I'm saying? Maybe his name is Randy though, because that's an American name, isn't it? Randy the cowboy. Randy Randy the rowdy rowdy cowboy. cowboy. Randy the rowdy cowboy. Um, My point is more that he's an expressive sort of chap. Yeah. Um, I think I personally, I'll, I'll tell you shortly. I think it's deliberate. But I, I'm curious to what, I mean, does it have any impact on you at all? Do you care? Do you feel offended when you watch that, that it's a problem that he shouldn't be doing it? It's annoying in the same way that when Jurgen Klopp does it, it, like sure. it's, it looks performative. performative. They're just trying to get, I agree with you, it's deliberate. I think it's entirely on purpose because the fans see their man, he's trying to create this, not contact, but uh, what's, what's the word? A siege mentality. A siege mentality. He's trying to get the fans on side, like, all together with the players as one, so the Emirates is this this cauldron of energy and intensity. And you don't he want to does, go there. He talked about energy in the documentary, didn't it he? It works. Like management, like managing a team at the elite level is not just like the tactics are a big part of it. The player mentality and the role to perform is really important. It's just, there's so many different things like psychology of the players and just trying to manufacture a team is very difficult with all these individual people who are big ego maniac superstar footballers it's mm. very hard to do he's done that but when you see him on the touchline I think the fans respond to it because they, he is like what they are like come on like come on do these things and yeah. energy projects it definitely comes across and you see now and again when he gets in trouble he sort of smirks a bit because you know that he knows what he's doing yeah. I think he knows entirely what he's doing but he does it because it comes across and he can't he can't tell anyone he knows yeah. what he's doing he has to keep going with it and so you see that and then sure enough referees will book him and he just runs down the touchline and starts trying to get ref- well, referees and linesmen sure. to do things that he wants them to do but Jurgen Klopp's been doing it for years as well it works for them and it's the this same sort the of thing. thing it's the intensity I, that really every works every winning team has had this in one way or another so yeah. Alex Ferguson is famous for, you know, pressing on the referees during games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jurgen Klopp does it too. Pep Guardiola encourages his players to foul, illegal fouls in the game in order to, you know, we call them tactical well, fouls. Well, publicly but he says he does not do that. Sure, fine. But, like, obviously it's obviously it's coached because they do it, right? And therefore, that is an example of technically breaking the rules or bending them to, to find a marginal gain. We all talk about that like with, with tactical fouls like it's a great thing. We talk about how it's like it's really smart and cool. 
Pep Guardiola does it in a way where it's sort of very civil and civilized, and yeah, he doesn't publicly admit to it. Whatever, I don't care. My point is more uh, that because Arteta's thing is very loud and on the sidelines, it draws a lot of attention. It draws lots of negative attention from opposite fans because he acts like a acts like a fan. But I think it's important because at the beginning of the season, you know, the funniest thing Arsenal have done for me all year is they've they've managed to make people not like them. I mean, at the beginning of the season, people, broadly speaking, liked Arsenal. They're a team of lovely young players. Everybody, sort of, they all seem like a nice group. Yeah, and you're happy to play against you're them. You're happy to play against yeah. them. <laughs> you, I enjoy watching them play. I, I enjoy seeing like the, the narrative of, of Arteta sort of come back round again after sticking with him and finally breaking free of the shackles of whatever it is, 18, 19 years of not winning a Premier League trophy. I, I hope that they, that they win because I, I think I enjoy them at the beginning of the season. Arteta has created a siege mentality in a team where everyone likes them, apart from Spurs fans. It's like quite an incredible achievement to start sort of going to the lads. Lads, everyone's against you. Everyone's against you. And that works from a psychological perspective. It, it G's the team up. It makes them feel closer together. It gels them as a unit. And it, and you would argue that there's a marginal gain in their performance as a result well, of I that. I think he must have it's looked... It's an achievement to do that when most people, broadly speaking, don't feel negatively towards you. Yeah, but when Arteta's making the step up um, from being player to assistant... He's done. You know, he's done his coaching badges a long time ago. Like he's, so he goes from a player to assistant under Guardiola to now being the full manager. He will have looked at how other managers have done it and look at what the elite ones have done. Like even like Conte recently creates this real intensity and atmosphere. Jurgen Klopp's done it. He had this intensity and atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, Alex Ferguson, like you know, like the the way the managers are tends to be how the teams play out in the pitch. Look at Guardiola's Man City. They're they're intricate and they're thoughtful and intelligent, and it's it eventually just overwhelms people. Mm. It's kind of how Guardiola is. You know, on the touchline, he comes across as very methodical, knows what he's doing. Arteta's trying to do what the really great like Liverpool team has done when they're clock, but it's all just energy and comes across. But he's got that thoughtful, articulate side because what he's doing is very devious and clever yeah. by doing a performative uh, dance on the touchline to get everyone and to, get a yellow. to his I, drum. I'm not saying, for example, that he shouldn't be yellow carded. I think fine. Like you, you know, The rules are fine to be there and it's fine for the coaches to press against them. He gets yellow carded or he yeah. gets sent to the stands or he gets a fine or whatever. I mean, use it to your advantage, right? I think it's weird that people start putting like moral distinctions on the yes. fact that they just don't like someone. And the reason yeah. you don't like Mikel Arteta is usually because he's an opposition manager who's doing well. Yeah. The same has happened with Jurgen Klopp as well. I think people like largely used to like him, but then Liverpool were always winning, and so people He's people are now, now like, oh, I don't, like them. Yeah. and that's fine. Like you don't have to like that. There's a dramatic element to football. You don't no, have to like true. everyone. But I, I always kind of think in this sort of situation, it's like you don't really care about if a manager is in or out of their technical area. You just don't really like him, and so yeah. you're you're trying you're to using that. you're trying to externalize that. Yeah. But it, interesting to talk about the way that Pep Guardiola has has operated recently because he came out after the the four two win against. Spurs uh, last week which we didn't talk about because it was bef- it was after our podcast yeah, it was on a Thursday night yeah but he obviously came out and then one had a lot of things to say about the the crowd but two had a lot to say about players as well uh, and again about the issues of of like of passion and desire and wanting it after being successful for such such a long time and, mm. and him saying that it's it's really hard to keep players and teams motivated because it is when you're so successful and what I think I so feel interesting that from my own personal experience I'm I'm so <laughs> incredibly successful it's hard yeah. the, the hardest thing for me is continuing to wake up every day and just just go out there and be more and more successful <laughs> it's very hard mm. Mm. but I, I do think with 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 Pep and with Mikel Arteta Yes. Just I really hate doing calling a, a manager by the first name like we're pals. Why, why did you do it? Like, because yeah. everyone does it, don't Pep they? Pep Guardiola. I, I apologise. Guardiola um, and M- Mikel Arteta both 
obviously are, are, are developing teams so they want to control games yeah. and with with Guardiola in particular, I think it's it, it's very much about like low risk, de-risking everything, right? Yeah. Uh, and so it must be super hard to motivate teams to play in a controlled way, if that yeah. makes sense. With someone like Jurgen Klopp, he can just scream on the touchline because the whole idea is that you're intense and you run into into pressing and stuff. Whereas with Arteta and Guardiola, it's slightly different sense of how do you motivate players because you don't want them to be the, to lose their heads on the field. You want yeah. them to do sensible things, but at the same time, it can also be quite. It's quite a it's quite a controlled and, and placid play style, and so I think sometimes like teams a clock team is going to do much better in in um, competition play, partly yeah. because it's all about being like this is the big game. Yeah. We've got to we prepared for this. We're all we we're going to be, be intense. We're going to like run further, run more, run harder, jump into the tackles. Yeah. Whereas Pep Guardiola can't do that. He's going to be like, well, we're going to do what we did in all of our other games, yeah. and we're going to control the game and uh, make sure think that we're. Pep Guardiola is sort of like the Jeff Bezos of football. You know, <laughs> in that he's trying to eradicate human <laughs> error from from uh, procedural uh, you yeah. know corporations. Yeah, if I, he, if, do you think if Pep Guardiola, maybe this is very unfair, but if he could replace all of his players with robots, with robots that's the that, that, that were programmed to do exactly what he wanted to do, would he do that, or is there an element of Pep Guardiola that prizes the uh, the, uh, no, the, the artist human creativity yeah. and originality? Is that is you that, that? But then maybe ChatGPT can get to that level. <laughs> so yeah. that's true. It's almost there. What is art? You know, can you find art in an Amazon smart warehouse? Probably. Maybe you can. This is the thing about City's style of play, though, is that even though they can do everything correctly most of the time, like I was looking at understats. They still can't deliver my package (laughs) the next day. I was looking at understats expected points model and to find a a season in the Premier League when Man City weren't at the top of that model at the end of the season of the points table was like 2015-16. So basically, according to the underlying numbers, that's the season before he arrives. So ever since they've been here, he's put up the best team. But they obviously haven't won it every season. Just say that again because I think like that is an incredible statistic. Every Manchester City season under Pep Guardiola, their XG, their underlying numbers, is better than any other team. So not, not the XG, but the, the expected points. So right. it takes the ex- expected goals for and against, runs it through an algorithm and works out how many points you would be expected to take from the games that you play. Yeah. And in all of those seasons, Manchester City are at the top of their expected points tables. Now, that means that you can play basically as close to perfect football as possible and still not win the league, which is why I think... Pep Guardiola is so fascinating because he's playing in a, a sport where variance is so impactful mm. that you can just do everything right and still not win the league. Um, and so we're all constantly having these arguments about like, is Pep really that good a manager? Yes, he is. But football yeah. is so variable that like sometimes and it doesn't work out. thank God, because if it wasn't, we They'd would have, have had to stop the podcast <laughs> yeah. a long time ago. People would have stopped watching the Premier League. Oh, think, they would so. have done. Anyway, listen, speaking of stopping, let's stop now for a short break. And when we return, we'll cover the Manchester United element of that game. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Oh, we've returned. What a delightful break that was. Uh, in the break there, JJ, you were telling me something interesting about XG. Let's talk about that quickly before we move on to Manchester United. Well, if you look at Scouts XG, there's lots, lots of different XG models. But if you look at Scouts yeah. in particular, Man City are top on XG by quite a distance, 43.6 goals. They scored 53. That's a big old performance by them. Mm. I think that's probably a giant boy-shaped uh, Erling Holland yeah. thing. Then Liverpool should be second on XG. <laughs> Liverpool should be second. Yeah, 38 goals. This is not expected points. So it's very different. Yeah. But 38.3 XG and they scored 34. So that's an underperformance by them. Yeah. Then Arsenal are third. They've uh, XG of 37.6 and 45 goals. That's a massive overperformance. So if that were to level out, yeah. they should score a lot less, a lot fewer goals. Expected goals against. Uh, Arsenal, are they have the best expected goals against. 16.3 that means they're the best 16. defensive team defensive yeah. team then City obviously second but they've conceded 20 goals which is about 2.3 more than they should have done did you say Arsenal have only conceded 16 goals yeah so five of those nearly third of them have been conceded against Manchester United yes wow. they seem to have their number well, and go. then Newcastle are third next year it's not yeah. expected points to be clear no that's that. just goals against well let's talk about Man United Obviously, John, you already mentioned that you thought this was a walkover uh, uh, to a certain degree, a, a hammering. I think you described it as not a walkover, a hammering. In fact, it very much wasn't a walkover. Manchester United, whether they deserved to or not, did make it rather hard for Arsenal. I think maybe the way of measuring Manchester United's performance here is set against the previous game between the two of them last year and the progress that they've made since, of course, we saw the inclusion of Valt Weghorst, who arrived uh, just this month um, and made some difference. Casemiro was a notable miss from the midfield. So I'm curious to hear from you, uh, based on your expectations of how they would perform, was Casemiro the miss that people said he was and what kind of difference did Valt Weghorst make? I don't think Casemiro made much of a difference uh, not being in this game because I don't feel as though the areas that Arsenal targeted were necessarily areas where, where Casemiro would have been. The first goal that Arsenal score is from a wide area, they move the ball around, get it to the fullback area and the ball's crossed in. I don't think Casemiro is going to make um, any impact there. The second goal was obviously that Saka brilliant finish. You could maybe argue that he uh, that Casemiro would have been sure um, lets him sure lets uh, Saka pass fairly easily. I think yeah, but I think, that, I think that that was a plan. Yeah, I think they were they would they'd move Derrickson into that area to to um, offer some sort of cover there as well when when Saka was mm. up against Shaw and I think mm, Shaw passes Saka on there to Ericsson and Oh, that's what I'm saying. But do you think if Casemiro was in place of Ericsson there, that maybe he blocks that shot? Yeah, potentially. It's also like a really low-value chance as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Marcus Rashford's, again, equally good goal, but um, very low-value chance. And then the other, the only other like notable chance they got was the was the header from, from mm-hmm. a corner where it was palmed down to, to Martinez. So, again, if you look at a shot map from this game, you can see I think Manchester United had about six or seven shots um, maybe maybe two or three in the box. Mm-hmm. If you look at the Arsenal chances, I mean, they had 63 touches in the box, Arsenal, so they, they clearly had the ball in dangerous areas way more. And I think that by the end of the game, the issue is not that, that Manchester United aren't able to defend in transitional moments, which is what you want someone like Casemiro for, so that they're not able to control the ball well enough outside of the... Uh, outside of the the box to do anything other than just sink deeper and deeper mm. into a block, um, and and Arsenal just slowly ground them down. So, to me, it didn't really feel like a game where where Casemiro would have made a huge amount of, of difference. I think it would have been a huge difference. 
Like, massive. Like, even that goal that Saka scores, the one where he comes inside and shoots it, like Ericsson's next to him. So, sure enough, maybe Ericsson would still have been there to try and track him a bit too slow. But, like, McTominay is... I think um, Casemiro would stand about two, three yards forward where Scott McTominay was, sort of predicting where that next bit of play might go. McTominay sort of reacts far too late to stuff, whereas Casemiro might be there. And just his positioning might then have stopped... This is very, like, hypothetical. But it might then have stopped Saka taking that shot because he would have been in the way. And there's certain things that, like, McTominay in build-up is always getting hit. So I think they used Ericsson more as the anticipator, blocker kind of guy, like Casemiro is in certain phases. And McTominay was swapping with him, and then they swapped around once they had the ball, and McTominay would go a bit deeper. But Casemiro would be in certain positions that would help them move the ball better because they didn't want to pass McTominay in closed positions. They, the, the Arsenal were trying to, like... I think he was a trigger press, but they weren't using him. So they weren't passing it to him, so they're going wide. And I think that, that would have been different for how they build up. Also, when McTominay did get the ball higher up the pitch, he still did it when he goes sideways and backwards, whereas Casemiro always goes forwards. And just those little things make a difference to the flow of the game. I, I think people are uh, maybe running a bit hot on Casemiro because he's come in and they've had that eight-game stretch against fairly naff teams. Yeah. And he's not been under much pressure in possession, and so he's going to look better there. Um, I felt in the City game, he was it was actually one of his worst performances, but because Manchester United ended up winning that game, everyone was claiming that that was the battle won between him and Rodri. Mm. But I, Everyone. You're really doing Everyone. an Arteta siege mentality. Yeah. Thing Everyone there, is against you? me, Joe. Setting yourself um, against you, the world. Do you not think, though, like, he just reminds me of... He's better than McTominay. Like, don't get me <laughs> wrong. Like, I'm not trying to make this argument. I just don't think that... I, I think that because... Manchester United just couldn't control the game at all. I just you don't think the think outcome he... of the game changes if he plays. No, sure. I'm not. I, I'm not sure that you would say that. Either. No, I don't think. I think Arsenal still have won. I just think the flow of it changes when he's there. There's a reason they win a lot and don't concede. But when him and Varane both play, I, don't, I think they only conceded like one goal or something. That's something stupid. But there are certain things he does that I think often go unnoticed. Not. By you per se, but like people certainly just... by the referees. Yeah, <laughs> there's there's certainly three refereeing decisions again in the Manchester derby where he could have. Given those players are so important. It's like Fernandinho was one who was really good, always in the right place at the right time, and often you don't know he's at the right place at the right time because the ball doesn't go to him. But just by being in a certain position, just quite close to another player or just in where the ball might go next, it makes the opposition have to take a different decision. Because if you look at like an easy pass where you pass it between two midfielders and you get the ball up 30 yards and something you can go in the counter-attack, Casemiro tends to be just slightly enough over to block that pass. It's very hard to say this without putting examples up. I notice it all the time when I watch him. And it stops the player who wants to play that pass from playing it, so they go wide with it instead, which has then changed the shift of that attack. And there's, there is a reason why he wins all these championships. You see, like, Real Madrid are not struggling just now, but they're not quite as cohesive because Chouamini's not the same sort of player. But he can fill in all the gaps where these things are, and I think he reads the play so well that when he's not there, you really notice it. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't disagree with you, but I do think that his upside comes in transitional moments, and I don't really think that Arsenal were causing Manchester, uh, Arsenal were causing Manchester United problems oh, yeah. in transition. The two goals that weren't, Wonder goals was wasn't a wonder goal came from just moving the ball into those wide areas and and, and playing sort of across the box. So uh, I don't know. I, I, he's obviously a great player and and has been important to what Manchester United do because they didn't mm. have a defensive destroyer, which is what they needed primarily. And he's come in and played the role really well. I just don't think that he would have made too much of a difference. What it, what is it about him that you hate so much? <laughs> um. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, tell me about Van Veghorst instead, because uh, whilst he didn't really touch the ball very much, he seemed to make a difference to the team's options. Yeah, I noticed that in build-up, 
Manchester United were doing this thing where they were trying to get the ball to him dropping a little bit deeper to create space in behind for particularly Rashford to run onto. Uh, another thing that they were doing in their build-up was they were, they were trying to get... Um, uh, it, Arsenal were going quite man-oriented as well in the high press. Fernandes was dropping in. We're seeing Luke Shaw inverting actually a little bit and, mm. and, and Fernandes pulling, trying to pull Partey out of the space in front of Weghorst so that David De Gea could go long to Weghorst. He could either get the flick on or then Manchester United were well positioned to win the second ball. Um, so he's become like he's, he's definitely a, a very Eric Ten Hag kind of player. That's the sort of player that he likes. He's going to pin the opposition back line. He's going to pull, pull players around. He's a good hold-up player as well, and he's also a box presence too. And he's been doing all of those things. I think the goal against Crystal Palace was a really good example of him pulling the back line deeper so that Fernandes had space to run into and then mm. score. I think he scored the goal. Did he score the goal? Maybe they didn't score that goal. I think I think they did. Maybe they did. Did they? I, well, I actually wasn't listening to you just for that last oh, one second. Right. I was I reading mean, the next bit of the I'm sure plan. the uh, audience probably weren't listening either. Were you so. listening? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> You're in a room I talking was looking for no the next bit as well. Well, I, well. Do you think the audience were listening what, for that bit? Will the producer come in for us here? Steve, do you know, were you listening, Steve? No. Oh, man, <laughs> literally no one was listening to you. I got the full house. That's the full house. <laughs> I managed to bore everyone in about 30 seconds. Just that last second Impressive. there. Well, in which case, let's let's uh, allow ourselves to read the room and, and, and move on from that conversation <laughs> altogether. Uh, we started this um, uh, podcast by saying that Manchester United have a 1% chance of winning the league. The same as Newcastle, according to 538. Uh, JJ, do you think they earned that 1% or... Uh, it's 538, all right. Not 538. That's how they call it in the cool stats community. Bruno it? Fernandes did actually score that Who goal, decided it? it was 538 and not 538, yeah? Blink-182. Blink-182. <laughs> I always used to call Blink-182. Yeah. yeah. It was 182, though. No, but you know, yeah, a clever, clever marketing team uh, for Blink-182 would say in, in the UK, call it absolutely whatever you like. Whatever you like. That's what that's it is. The, just buy the record. It's the Cliff Richard boys. thing, isn't it? Where he yeah. changed his name to Cliff Richard rather than Cliff Richard so that whenever anyone said Cliff Richards, he could be like, actually, it's Cliff Richard without an S and it's just... Was he, did he really start stick. with an S? No, he didn't. He he was he, didn't. he had a different name entirely. What was his name? Uh, Let's find it? out. Ron Weasley. Cliff Weasley. Richard's <laughs> real name. It was Ron Weasley. Cliff Richard's real name, Harry Roger Webb. Harry Webb, that's it, yeah. <laughs> he changed his name to Cliff Richard because Harold of marketing. <laughs> yeah, well, Harry... Harry Roger Webb. I What's the name of that referee? Webb. Howard Webb. Howard. Harold Webb. Do you remember Howard from the, the uh, is it the Halifax Richards, adverts? Yes. The Netflix adverts, Howard? Yes. He yeah. was cool. I liked Howard. Is he not the face of Halifax anymore? Is he, is he still? I don't know. I assume so. Howard from Halifax. Can you explain to um, overseas listeners who won't know what Halifax is or who Howard Halifax from Halifax is? Halifax is a, a, a building society. Presumably originally based in Halifax, which is a northern English town. And they had a face. <laughs> it was Howard. Howard Brown is a former customer services representative and sales ambassador for Halifax. Uh, owned by the Bank of Scotland. Yeah. Did you know that? Yes, I do. Yeah? Okay. He's best known for his appearances in Halifax uh, television advertisements, often singing and dancing. He was in the office. In the, yes, he uh, was in the ones, ones, yeah. yeah, there you go. When he's doing the rounds. That's it. Oh, yeah, here it is. Music and television career. Very long. In 2005, the Bank of Scotland dropped Brown from their versions of the adverts as the style of the adverts was not well received by its customers. <laughs> he didn't get cancelled, did he? In 2005, he released a cover of the Barry White song, You're the First, the Last, My Everything, as a charity single. It peaked at number 13 in the UK singles charts. Do we have time? I really, really need <laughs> to see that. Well, listen, in February 2021... 
Brown appeared on the TV show Hypothetical in its third season as a, as a special guest. So he's still... Howard Brown's still out there. Well, take care, Howard. Howard. We should probably uh, have another break, though. Is it time for a break, Steve? Yeah. Well... <laughs> Sounds like you took a break between yeah. me asking <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and answering. But let's have a break and then we'll come back and probably uh, stop talking about Howard Brown. Hello, I'm Adam Hurry, host of a unique football podcast, one of the top 20 football podcasts in Guatemala, a cult football podcast. No, actually, it's one of the most important football podcasts. Football Clichés, a product of nearly 20 years of obsessive research, is a podcast about the mundane and magical depths of the language of football the curious and sometimes almost subliminal things that define the way we consume the modern game. At what age is a player eligible to roll back the years? When does a club's highly rated conveyor belt of talent turn into a fabled production line? How many types of goal-scoring header are there in the footballing vocabulary? Football Clichés doesn't just leave no stone unturned. It looks at every single stone and wonders, what's the threshold for a stone to become a rock? But for football, obviously. Listen for your sins on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Yeah, Liverpool nil, nil Chelsea. What a boring game that was, hey? What a what a boring old game. One of those games where you watch it, you sit at home, and you start by thinking, "Wow, I wish I was dead," and then you start thinking. If I was dead, though, what would that be like? And then you contemplate life and you think about the meaninglessness and how you don't have any purpose. And You got married last year, didn't you? Yeah. I love my wife. Mikhailo Mudrik. I think I might also love this guy. Same hair colour as my wife, but uh, more tattoos. He's um, <laughs> sort of uh, looking interesting and this sort of looking guy. Looks like a good player of football, JJ Ball, with yeah. a purpose. He's very good. Yeah. Um, He's really quick. You saw him in a couple of uh, bursts late in the game where he came on and just made things happen. Mm. This is what this guy does. He makes things happen. He's very direct, very explosive, you could say. Uh, he explodes. Yeah, he's two-footed, like completely two-footed. He can go either way. He can cross from his left and his right because mm. he's two-footed. Yeah. And he can shoot with his left or his right. All the things important for a football uh, player. And, you know, the thing that's important for a football team mm. is that they have him signed on an extremely long Contract. Chelsea have a few of these now. Almost seems as though they're in vogue, John McKenzie. Uh, big old contracts for Wesley Fofana, Benoit Badiashile as well. Um, seven or eight year stretches. Why are they doing why are they doing this? Well Todd Todd Bowley is an American. He owns other sports franchises in America. Yes. And Having long contracts is a thing that they do in the US. In America. It, it's true. We I, learn so much from America, don't we? We, we do, yes. Mm. They've won the cultural war. They have done. If it was Civ, they'd have won that. They've won it, big yeah. time, yeah. They've, they've influenced the it's culture Hollywood. of the rest of the world in yeah. a major, major way, major way. I think people are influenced by friends. I think that just does so much to everyone it does. of a certain age. It does. You know, I saw a band, a boy band on TikTok the other day uh, make a video about why they sing in an American accent because people they're a British band so, and people asked them about it and then they sung their song in a British accent and it's, it did sound stupid. Well, I remember <laughs> we used to play in bands, and there were uh, there was all these these skate punk bands we would play. Yeah, and it was when all Blink One Eighty Two and that were you know big and everything. We yeah. all loved that stuff. Blink One Eighty Two. Blink One Eighty Two. Yeah, and there was one I can't remember what they called. I think. Some Glasgow band, and they'd be like, "All right, boys, you should go on. I, I, I'm going on stage now. You all right?" And they go on stage and be like, "I'm going to the mall <laughs> on my skateboard. You can't stop me." Yeah. All right, Glasgow, thanks very much for it. Yeah. They're coming down. My sister-in-law did a, a, a her whole 
whole master's her dissertation was about uh, people singers' choice of accent. Very, yeah. it's very interesting. But there are re- there are reasons for it. What I'm saying, I suppose, is that, that uh, we shouldn't discourage people from singing in whatever way brings them joy. I um I watched the Burnley game against West Brom on Friday. <laughs> yeah, and you wouldn't have thought that you could tell where the crowd were from from singing but you can but you could when the Burnley fans song that's, that's the thing I took away you can tell that. Newcastle when they sing as well yeah. you can hear that accent I think uh, I like that yeah the, just the tone of the boo mm, very <laughs> enjoyable <laughs> very enjoyable fine well listen anyway we're here to discuss the length of Chelsea's yes, contracts yes. as I said Wesley Fofana Benoit Badiashile seven to eight years why so long America yeah well Americans have longer contracts but there's a different yeah Context of transfer. They have longer lives. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, they've actually worked out how long these players are going to live and divided their age by. Yeah. <laughs> that's not what happens. No. no, no. Um, but obviously, mm. there's a, there's a lot of reasons why you might want to have a longer contract as a, a club because yeah. expected life. <laughs> expected life. Yeah. Um, John, John's reached the end of his tether with us interrupting now. We'll <laughs> let him. No, we'll let him. You brought carry on. Steve Hankey to be a producer and try and <laughs> rein it in. You've got much worse ever since you did. <laughs> Come on, Steve. Well, that's just plausible you? deniability yeah. right there, yeah. isn't it? It's like no, I, I'm actually producer. interested in the answer to this question. Yeah, essentially, if you have a young player and you can get them on a long contract, it it de-risks a lot of the the, mm. the issues that you can have. Both in terms of so there's there's two issues. I think one of them is obviously just actual value. You're worried about the the, the value of your player. Um, but the other one is FFP value as well, so things with amortisation as well. As you know, when you when you bring in a player, you um, you're able to spread the, the the cost of that player through a number of years. Uh, the longer that that contract is going to be, the more you're able to spread that cost, and so the, the smaller, smaller the, the book value fee. will actually be. Yeah. And it means they're worth more money later on. So if you had a player on like a three four year deal. Towards the end of that, they might be worth fifty million at the start, then they're worth less because people would see, well, you've got less time in your contract, so you could. Yeah, that- basically. So when you when you're buying a player, you're not actually just buying that player. No one owns the player. What you're buying is the the right to play that player for a certain amount of time. So Mikhail Mudrik has been bought for however much it was, hundred million, yeah. eighty million for seven years, right? Yeah, or eight. Something. So you you've paid seventy, eighty million to play that player for those for those years. Let's make it simple and say it was eighty million okay, in eight years, eight years, even though it yeah. wasn't. That's uh, the amortized value yeah. is ten million a year. Right? So yeah, everything that you bring in as a business will devalue through time, and that contract is no different, right? The, the further you go through that contract it's worth less but you've also been paying to play the player so you're getting the value out of it as well Mm. so if you have a long contract you're able to spread the value over a a longer period and yeah if you what as you go through that each year you're taking 10 million off that value so halfway through that that contract mudrick will be considered to be worth 40 million in terms of the book value the remaining that, that, that chelsea still have to pay the question therefore is i can understand entirely why a club would want to do that because it seems that it's completely within their interest. Why would a player mm. at Mudrick's age sign an eight-year contract if you think, for example, okay, four years down the line you have a great run of seasons and Real Madrid or Barcelona come in for you, offer you a pay rise, they want to take you on, but your club won't sell because there's four years of your contract left? Just before I get to that, just oh. some of the other things that it's better for the club but, before we get to the player. But like, obviously... When the player's contracted, they can't leave for free, which is obviously the longer that you have, the less time you have to worry about that. And if you think about a player having like a three or four year contract, 
as soon as they've gone one or two years into that three or four year contract, you're immediately having to think of selling them on mm-hmm. because you wanted to get value back for them. If you sell, if you get to the a year before their contract is up, their value is going to be much lower than peak again. So if you have a longer contract, you don't have that issue until much later in mm. their contract as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also keep wages lower. You know what the wage packet is going to be for that player because it will be probably straight line. But there, there may be situations where you can say, at a certain point, your wage is going to go up or down depending on where you're at in the contract. Um, and even if like a player gets injured, like a lot of people say, well, what if you buy a player on an eight-year contract and they get injured? Clubs do have pretty slick insurance packages as well. So that that has been de-risked as well. And, and again, it's important to remember that this is a sort of linear risk model as well. So like your, in, your insurance premium is going to go up, but you know exactly how it's going to go up. It's going to go up in a linear manner. So yeah. again, you're, you, it's going to cost you the same amount as if you bought a player on a short contract, etc. So right. it's just ways for the club to know that they're actually de-risking themselves in terms of this player's career. It's, 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 it's going to be fine for them. It's I'm, important to remember that this is a linear risk model. <laughs> that's, I'm going to start using right. that line. Look, um, Harry Kane's gone and done himself with that long contract at Spurs. Well, and, indeed. So then that would be the downside of it, right, for the player? Yeah, for the player, yeah. Something um, you can't even do in some countries. Yes, yes. So um, there, there is there is rules about. I think that Italy, it, you can't do, you can't sign players in Italy for FIFA. For you're not allowed years. to offer a contract that's over five years unless the con- the laws of the country that you're in allow allow it. Allow so in Italy, it, yeah. you can't do that. Yeah, that's a workers' rights thing, right? Because mm. as you're saying, once you're in a contract, it's very hard to get out of it unless certain conditions are met as well. So the the big question is why would a player agree to do that? But I think someone of Modric's age. He would be. I think if, when it's a big club like Chelsea, you can be pretty sure that like that's not going to ruin your career, unless you do something wrong or something goes wrong for you. Mm. Um, I, I guess the other thing that you might talk about would be, as you were saying before, if you're amortising a player on a really high wage, they might not uh, on a really high um, transfer fee. Sorry, they may not want to sell you early on because they'll. As we said, if if Mudrick's value is going down by 10 million a year and they paid 80 million for him after two years he'll still be have a book value of 60 million to them and it would be unlikely that unless he really explodes that they would make more money than that so again that might induce Chelsea to try and keep him on as, as long and say mm-hmm. once he's got three years left on his contract then he's only book valued at 30 million and so and so they might they would then be able to book a profit if they sold him for more than 30 million so um, I think there's there, there is definitely like a risk for the player but I, I think you know that you're guaranteed to get a decent wage for for eight and a half years mm. and if you're a young player in particular i guess there's there's always the risk that you might not live up to your potential and so this might be the best contract that he could feasibly get for the rest of his career and if it isn't and he does really well then you would hope that he would be able to be sold on as well but yeah um it's, it's definitely a brave new world of like approaching contracts and i think clubs are going to try and do that if they can because obviously they're, they're de-risking those yeah. those contracts but the risk is going to be as always to the players Ah, the shifting tides of the balance of power mm. between players and clubs. A war of attrition that will never end, JJ. Speaking of wars of attrition, West Ham 2. Nil Everton. Now, goodness gracious me, I don't think we should spend that long speaking about this because this has the feel of a, a, a podcast topic of conversation that we record on a Monday and by a Tuesday it is no longer relevant. But uh, good for West Ham to get a win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously that's good for them. Uh, David Moyes not having the best 
season, but like that win takes them like it looks terrible when they're sitting in nineteenth wherever they were before the game started, and that just jumps them straight up to sixteenth. Another win, and everyone else above them loses, and they jump up to thirteenth, which is fine for West Ham. So it's it's a weird bit that bottom and half of the table. It's very easy to kind of get out of them. West Ham struggle to change from being a counter attack transition team. They want to try and turn into more of a exciting, entertaining uh, possession based kind of game. In fact, David Moyes was on, on a podcast, the Diary of a CEO thing. I listened to that. It was really good. Oh, was he on that? Yeah, it was really interesting talking about um, what he found at Man United, how he felt let down by them, mm. by a few different things, and how he wants to build a new West Ham and the difficulties that come with that. It, yeah, it was cool hearing him talk in, uh, in, in that way. But you see with West Ham, it takes a while for new players to, to gel always, and they have, they've had a bit of bad luck with some of the things going on. And um, Do you not have Everton to be a CEO to go on that podcast? Is that not? Well, apparently not. I thought it was for CEO. I think he's the CEO, the boy Steve Bartlett. That guy yeah. is, yeah. He owns a few companies. Is David Moyes, I suppose, probably is, probably could be. I think, I'm well, sure he owns some companies. So like we were talking earlier about Arsenal having that real momentum and intensity, the kind of thing that Liverpool have lost, mm. right? So you see Liverpool have great players who aren't playing well and they've lost that intensity and momentum and that air of unbeatability that they used to have. And so suddenly they seem quite beatable and they are beatable and they're, they're just not playing very well. They've, they're lacking what makes them really, really work. And it'll take a bit of time to get that back on because you can't just give players confidence. They have to grow it through winning games. Yeah. Now, Everton... I mean, that went out months ago, completely gone. There's a great article in The Athletic uh, this morning by, um, uh, what's his name again? Ahmed Walid. Ahmed Walid, yeah, it's so good. If you've got The Athletic, or you don't, you sign up, but if you do, go and read it. It looks at how Everton are even worse when they've conceded because they just lose all their defensive shape, easily beaten in transition. That's how West Ham did them in this game. Uh, And there's loads of examples from throughout the season where they're they're just not, they don't look well coached to me. And right. it could be that the players aren't good enough. So, like, sure enough, you have a good coach in there and the players are making mistakes. That's not the manager's fault. That's the players not doing the things they're supposed to do. So it could be that. Um, but I remember watching uh, Lampard's Chelsea and thinking they looked quite good in the final third because they had good players and it was quite chaotic which one to build. But they had real trouble defensively and they were getting beaten too easily and they became more of an upper mid-table team. I mean, that's been harsh. I think they were, like, fourth or something when they got done. But... Everton now, they just look really disjointed. He's saying all the right things about how they're going to put the work in whatever. The players aren't really good enough. They have no budget whatsoever to be able to buy anyone in to make it better. And the players they've had are the same ones they've had for a little while. And they're putting round peg square holes, playing Alex Wobie as a wing back doesn't work. This is not a good idea. And I don't know how they get that back. The only real way you can try and like reset that is just getting rid of a Lampard and putting someone else in. But it might not be that Lampard is that bad a coach. Like I, I mean, it's just the players, like I'm saying. It could be that that's what the case is and he could easily fix it with different players coming in. But at the moment, it looks like the only way they could do it is you bring in someone who could just arrest that and turn it into a real defensive team, sit in a low block and do that Sam Allardyce classic thing where you just shithouse your way to... Are you to... speaking of Sean Dyche? Well, I don't know if Sean Dyche is actually that kind of... like Man, the, the way he, what he did really well with Burnley is they were a lot more attacking than you'd think Burnley. Like They pushed up really high, really high line... Often they're they, pressed they, high in phases as yeah. well. People always think of them just being a low block team, but they like they just had their moments of going forward and then their moments of knowing when to drop back. And, and they were fast, it was yeah. fast and direct. Yeah, um, these the, the back four became a back three regularly. He's doing that before a lot of other teams were doing it. Like, it, tactically, it was quite clever, but he forged a mentality that might mean they could they battle. You don't want to play against Burnley, mm. they had big hoofers who would kick you about. 
And Everton don't really have that. They've got We're back to the cows again. Yeah, and that's heifers. Oh, heifers. Hoofers are like fridge freezers you put up front. Right. And uh, yeah, Everton's best player, Calvert Lewin, always injured. You can't do much with that. The defenders individually aren't playing very well. It's a real struggle to see where they get that without having a. Mm. Is it nothing? Not, nothing lost, nothing gained for Everton, isn't it? It's sort of right, they're going down under Lampard. He's had thirty-eight games in charge, I think, and he's got thirty-five points, which is less than a point per game, which is not enough to What's to really his... consistently stay in the the top uh, flight. And it's just it's got to a point now. He's taking them down. You might as well just flip things up and see if if you can get someone who's going to change things. Yeah, his win percentage is twenty-seven point nine. That's not good. No. Ancelotti, who well Benitez was in before him, obviously didn't like him. He was 31, but that was when all the trouble sort of started because they spent all their money on different players and now they're getting rid of them, trying to take the wage budget down. I mean, presumably part of the issue with the Lampard thing is, it, obviously, we, we spoke about this the other week, but the board did, didn't go to the game the other day and the sort of, you know, machinations ongoing behind the scenes. It's a difficult time to make that kind of managerial change. Yeah, I think it's going to be an issue trying to get anyone in, like... Uh, yeah. You know, people are saying it's Sean Dyche show, right? as though Sean Dyche is going to just happily... Drop Walk into, into this, a shit show. Into, yeah. yeah, and I, I don't think that he will. Why would he? He'll, he'll be able to pick up any of the teams, I guess, that that drop yeah. their manager in the in the last run of the season. I mean, also, yeah. what's he doing right now, Sean Dyche? Because Sean Dyche is going around watching football games and probably Ch- getting better, at chilling out, getting better. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I thought might be an idea for Everton is they keep Lampard for the season because maybe turns it around and proves him to self to be. A really capable, like quality coach. Maybe he brings another coaches to help him get the defense sorted out. Something like that. Maybe, maybe they sign players in January. Who knows? But also, if they get to the end of the season and they are relegated, which obviously would be bad, then step in, Captain Wayne Rooney yeah. to come in, who did very well with Derby in the Championship uh-huh. with a real problem club. They had like constant turnover of players, loads of youth players you had to bring in to turn it into a cohesive, sure. workable team, and they were good. They, yeah. they had to fight. They got relegated because they had that massive points total. They just couldn't get over the line. But uh, like I watched Derby last season to do a thing we did on uh, Derby and what was wrong with them. And um, I mean, you think it would be the romantic thing bringing in a former club legend so the fans can then connect with it. You might get a bit of that. Like a lot of the again, going back to Arsenal, start of the podcast, the connection between the fans and the the players and the manager it seems all there and that really helps. And it seems that there's a disconnect between like owners, manager, club, and fans. And all that bit's going on in, in the with that club just now, and it's very hard to then settle all that. But you bring in something mm. like Wayne Rooney, unproven, he might be an excellent choice. Who knows? Who, Who knows? knows? Captain Wayne. Mm. Okay, well, Steve's got a couple of uh, notes for me here. Everton do, of course, to be in their new stadium for the 24-25 season. So were they to be relegated this season, they would spend the last year in Goodison Park in the championship. Could, That'd be fun. They'd win loads. You know what I was going to say? Could be sad, could be fun, depending on your perspective i think from a financial perspective the club being relegated wouldn't be fun no we've covered that in video form before last year when similar when they were in a similar position and of course they escaped it then but uh, much more interestingly a heifer is a female cow that has not had any offspring yet Uh, the term usually refers to the immature females after giving birth to her first calf however a heifer becomes a cow and an adult male is known as a bull, of mm. course. But what is Which, a what is an adult, that, what is a child it. male known as a bullock? That's right, isn't it? A bullock, a calf, a bullock. Sandra Bullock and JJ Bull. Sandra Bullock, Sandra Bull. Yes. And JJ Bullock. So JJ Bullock. A bullock, young neutered male cattle, primarily raised for beef. Neutered, you say? Mm. Well, now. 
again, perspective. Let's hope that JJ never becomes JJ Bullock. No. <laughs> Imagine the zest that would be uh, disappear from his character. <laughs> Do you think that happens? I don't know. I, I don't speak for people who 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 are without testicles. But I mean, and uh, eunuchs. Did they have personality changes, or was it? What's the next in the plan? The lack of... <laughs> well, there we go. It's a conversation about Unix. Let's move on. We don't know anything about Unix, do we? But JJ Bull, we know a lot about you and we'll miss you for the rest of the week. All the best. Take care. Where am I going? I don't know. Just, you know, the listeners will miss you. Not me. I'll see you. Oh, you'll see I'm me, I'm sick yeah. and tired of you. Well, they can see me all the time on YouTube. That's true. Where can they see you? Tifo IRL. That's right. And John McKenzie, they can see you there too. They can. Yes. And uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you. Oh, you were on the Totally Football podcast as well yesterday, weren't you? I was. Yeah, bigger and better Mr. things. Mr. Big it? Shot. Yeah, Big Shot. What did you say on there? Was it as good I as us? I said I don't like you and, and or any of you, actually. You said to them you didn't like them? No, you. Oh, I was going to say, it's confusing. Uh, I thought he would limit that just to you, but he means me and Seb as well. You That's, as well. Yeah. And Jamie. And Jamie. Well, Steve. Especially Jamie. So what you're telling me is that you went on the biggest football podcast in the UK and you used it as an opportunity to say that you don't like people the audience have never heard of. Yeah. yeah. It seems like you've ruined your chance to go on there again, doesn't it? Potentially. Check him out on the Totally Football podcast with James Richardson. Hopefully you'll enjoy that. And if you don't like John, then don't do that. <laughs> because he's on it. Yeah. Uh, Steve Hankey. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Good job restraining yeah, the conversation. Yeah, it didn't really work, did it? No, it didn't <laughs> work, no. Uh, but of course, thank you to uh, your silent partner in crime over there, Jamie the Video Man. Thank you, Jamie. All the best uh, for the rest of the week there. Back from skiing is Jamie. From skiing. We'll be back next week to uh, to do this again. Hopefully we'll be joined by Seb Stafford Bloor when we can fix the internet uh, blockade between Germany and England. But uh, it's all going to be fine for the rest of the season. Take care, all the best, and be Anvenue. That's welcome, isn't it? Again, <laughs> I've said it again. Goodbye. Athletic.